So on today's episode, I interviewed top psychologist Hadi Damastani. Now, three months ago, Hadi was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And since then, he's had to change his eating plan to a ketogenic diet. The other interesting thing about Hadi is that he specialises as a psychologist in emotional eating. So I thought it'd be great to get Hadi on the show to talk about how changing his diet plan has affected his health and also to discuss emotional eating. Now, if you enjoy today's episode, you can subscribe via iTunes or any Android podcast player. You just need to search The Gary Gun Show. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. So first of all, welcome to today's show, Hoddy. Thank you very much, Gary. Great yeah, to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. And I must say, you are looking healthy. Thank you. Yes, it's <laughs> um, under the circumstances. I'm feeling great and I'm looking not too bad either, actually. So yes, out of something quite unexpected and challenging, something positive has come, which is how I'm looking at this and practicing what I preach as much as I can. Mate, you look you look great. What have you got? Like your stats at the moment? Do you know what bodily percentage you are at the moment? Uh, not really. I mean, I, I've never been someone that does body fat tests and things very often. But out of curiosity, I <laughs> yeah. stepped on the scales at the gym the other day, and uh, it's one of these machines. I don't know how accurate they are. I understand that they're not quite as accurate the ones where you sort of step on the machine compared to the skinfold calipers. Um, but I think I'm about sort of nine or ten percent body fat. I've lost. I've lost since being diagnosed with diabetes. I've lost maybe a stone and a half, um, and and my body fat, as I said, is about nine, nine or ten percent. So that, but that weight loss is nothing to do with the actual diabetes. It's to do with your change in diet, if I'm correct. Yes, I think initially what happens sometimes with type one in particular is you do tend tend to lose weight. I'm not sure the exact science behind that, but that's quite common. And then now the weight loss has been more from the changes that I've made in in my diet, in particular cutting the carbs out. And there's a reasonable amount of calories in carbs, so I need to make sure I'm eating enough from protein and fats to be able to make sure I've got enough energy and not losing any more weight. So this is this diet's known as the ketogenic diet. If I'm not that's mistaken. right. I'm okay. by no means an expert in the diet, but I understand yeah. that that's I've got a good person who's been advising me along the way. Because if I'm honest, the medical profession haven't been particularly helpful. The advice I've got hasn't been particularly helpful, and I know they're under pressure and strain. But if I didn't have this friend who just sort of came along at the right time, he's been advising me and directing me towards scientific papers and things. Because you know me, I like to understand things scientifically yeah. if I. Can can so so what you weren't given good advice by by the, by the doctors nothing or? whatsoever to do with diet and that's the interesting really thing. it was very much about your you are type one let's get you on insulin as soon as possible and i was prescribed insulin which is you know the way to treat it i was prescribed insulin it's the only route eventually for type ones but i was advised by my friend who works with diabetes patients all day he's an exercise physiologist i was advised that actually maybe right now it's not the right time for you to take it because actually at the moment your numbers are not worryingly high, your blood sugar levels not worryingly high because I'm testing several times a day and actually your pancreas at the moment is still working and you are your blood sugar levels are still going down after eating. So it's just, it's working your pancreas. So maybe now is not the time just yet. Yeah. So have you, have you found then by doing or utilizing the ketogenic diet that your, your potential symptoms haven't got worse or have they got better or how's that Im- impacted? Symptoms have gone. So the symptoms really, I mean, the whole reason I went for this health check in the first place is one of these things that I should have done when I was 40 and I'm 44 now. And I got a text message from the doctors saying, come along for your sort of MOT health check. And uh, I thought I'd do that at some point, as we do, you know, us blokes in particular. Um, <laughs> and then I just noticed that I've been getting quite tired recently. And that kind of made sense to me because I'm, I'm, I work a lot and I don't always sleep as well as I might do, despite helping people in that area. Um, so I thought I'm feeling tired. So maybe I'll go to the doctors, but I was going to the bathroom quite often as well. So I was finding that I wasn't always drinking a lot of water either, but I was going to the bathroom sometimes every hour. And I thought that's, that's not right either. Maybe it might be a prostate issue or something along those lines. So I thought it's best I go along for this health check. And the last thing I ever imagined was it to be diabetes. Yeah, obviously, um, you've been practicing, you know, as a psychologist for is it over 20 years, roughly. Or 18, 18 years. 18 years. Yes, yes. I mean, obviously, something like being diagnosed with that must have had a psychological impact on you. Could you just explain how that felt? It at the did. Time? I mean, the, the biggest impact it had, first of all, was the impact on my self-perception. 
So I, I always see myself, as other people do, I imagine as well, in my group of friends as someone who's fit and healthy and active. I go to the gym four times a week, have done for 25 years, and I follow a, a healthy diet. I don't eat that much fat or carbs generally anyway. So my perception of myself is I am an exerciser, I'm fit and I'm healthy. It's how I see myself. And then suddenly this idea, and it still feels odd even saying it now, this idea I have diabetes. So even saying that now feels odd, feels uncomfortable. And there's a part of me that still hasn't fully accepted that yet. So it was initially, how, how on the one hand can I be this fit, healthy person, but on the other hand, have this lifelong chronic illness. So I experienced this cognitive dissonance. And how did you come to terms with it? Or obviously you're still coming to terms with three months is a very short period of time. But between when you were first diagnosed and now, what's changed in your psychology or your thinking about having diabetes? That's a good question. Um, I think, I think it's accepting it really, it took me a little while to accept it and I'm not immune to these things just because of what I do for a living. So I, I guess if I'm honest, I probably, there probably was a period where I was in denial where I thought maybe they've got the test wrong. They must have it wrong. And then it didn't feel real to me either till I started taking insulin. So there was a six week period where I wasn't taking any, any insulin. And in, I was sort of thinking, well, maybe, maybe they've got it wrong. Maybe I don't have to take insulin. Maybe I'll get to a point where I don't have to take insulin at all. And then when I did, it was, so it was sort of stages of acceptance, I guess. And then when I'm taking insulin, I kind of recognize, well, look, this isn't about my lifestyle choices. I'm still a fit, healthy person. I feel as good as I ever have done now. And I look pretty good as well. And actually, I'm still a healthy person who happens to have this condition. So you would say, would you say now that you're healthier now than what you were, say, four months ago? What are your energy levels like and just general day-to-day -day living? Yeah, my energy levels are better. I mean, ironically, my diet now is probably more varied than it was before because I... I kind of, I'm one of these people that I don't like to waste too much decision making as far as food is concerned. First of all, I can't cook, which limits me somewhat anyway. And secondly, I'd rather not channel my decision making faculties towards what shall I eat. I'd rather that not be something that takes up too much of my headspace. So I would eat pretty much the same thing every day. What did you, what did you so use I'd, to eat? I'd have tuna and rice most days. Packet, packeted rice uh, in the packeted microwave. Packeted rice. <laughs> rice being one of the worst things for sugar as well, which I didn't, didn't realize that, you know, white rice when you digest is it, yeah. full of full of sugar and you know even the basmati rice which tends not to be quite so bad as some of the other types of rice the basmati rice is loaded with sugar so uh really yes, i was having that on a regular basis at least once sometimes twice a day for years wow see a lot of the uh, old like diet and nutrition advice from the gyms to have you know your chicken breast and your bag of rice with each meal which um, obviously now you, you've moved on to a ketogenic diet, which is ex completely different to that method of thought. So could you, could you just talk to me about what the, the ketogenic diet means for you? So what, you know, what, what kind of food do you eat? What do you stay away from? Have you had any issues since you've adopted the approach? Because obviously, you know, you, you're in, you look in great condition. So from my point of view, this, this ketogenic diet could be valuable to a lot of people, not just necessarily on your own journey. Okay. Yes. Well, I mean, the sort of the changes in my body shape was quite an unexpected thing, really. I mean, it's you know, a lot of people follow the ketogenic diet for sort of weight loss and weight control kind of reasons, don't they? And I think that uh, that has happened for me and that wasn't particularly part of the plan. But uh, I'm not complaining because it's body fat that I've lost mostly. I can I can tell that it is. Um, so it's really I'm being probably stricter than maybe a lot of other people would be, I would imagine. Um, I'm just going to have a quick sip of water. Yeah, that's fine. So I'm assuming then um, with the ketogenic diet, it's about cutting out carbohydrates. So you're allowed protein and fat. So you're allowed like bacon, you're allowed mm -hmm. eggs, you're allowed cheese. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't go overboard on that kind of stuff. Okay. But, uh, but I think... I think one of the things from reading around this area as well is that carbohydrates can do can do a lot of damage over time, actually. And so the government recommendations that haven't changed and probably should do from what I've been reading for many years have been that carbohydrates, I don't know the exact percentage, but carbohydrates should should constitute a reasonable amount of your diet as far as a healthy, balanced diet is concerned. And that's probably not the case. So as far as what I do is concerned, I stay away from all carbohydrates and sugar as much as I can. So I'll have salad. And by salad, I'll have spinach. I'll have celery. I'll have tomatoes, those kind of things. And I will have either chicken breast or I will have mackerel or I will have tuna or I will have steak sometimes, although not too often. I have eggs. I have two eggs a day. 
Um, so, so was there, dairy products? Yeah. So, was there? Um, did you have any problems with digestion-wise when you transitioned from to the ketogenic diet, or were you completely fine? I, I didn't really. No, no, I didn't. I mean, I was slightly concerned about the fiber side of things on that front, so I'd sort of take a supplement for fiber. But I, that was I didn't experience any any difficulties. That was more of a sort of just preventative thing. Just yeah. it made sense for me to to maybe do that to supplement. What's the supplement called? So it's called Fibogel, and I think this friend of mine, who's an exercise physiologist, who's been giving me all this good advice, I think he might have recommended it to me. Okay. So I sort of just take it with a glass of water in the mornings. Yeah. Okay. That's a that's a good point. Um, to obviously making sure you have enough fiber on this, and obviously understand this isn't a professional opinion. This is just your experience of moving on yes. onto this diet. How um, have you found your energy levels? You know, if you could compare them, maybe two years ago to now how you're feeling on this diet so have you got like a could you explain the differences on, on how yeah you're feeling? yeah i think my energy levels are are better for sure i think certainly i mean what i don't know is how long i've had this condition for so i imagine that my estimate is about maybe a year so okay. about a year before i went for this appointment i probably had the condition and i was feeling very tired okay really yeah, lacking yeah, yeah. in energy so prior to that my energy levels were reasonable but not as good as they are now and i think because i was having too much rice that contained sugar and because i wasn't eating enough vegetables i need to be very careful of fruit of course yeah, so as a diabetic okay. it's um vegetables most of them are fine but fruit can be can be a big no-no certain because of the amount of sugar because the amount of sugar see the, the, there's a lot of advice that says you know smoothies and all these things are really good for you but again i'm assuming that as a diabetic they just transgress into sugar smoothies and juices for me are a big no-no really yeah. That's it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's so much, so many different forms of advice about wh what's good for you, what's not. You need to get your vitamins and minerals from having, you know, from having fruit. And so, are you? Do you? Are you tracking um, your, you know, vitamin C intake? Are you supplementing anything else? Are you having vitamin B? I, I'm or not anything really, like that? Gary. To be honest with you, I don't, I don't know enough about supplementation and optimal vitamin sort of dosage and this kind of thing. So, you know, whether it will be valuable for me to do that or not it depends who i speak to some people believe that actually supplementation is not necessary if you've got a balanced diet other people believe that actually maybe supplementation for your own personal needs is is probably quite good so so but i don't personally know okay yeah no that makes sense as well so with regards to obviously sticking to this diet i mean there's are there any potential problems when you're you know say you haven't prepared your food and you're out and about can that be quite difficult finding keto friendly food Absolutely can. And in actual fact, because I haven't been traveling so much with my work recently, and by traveling, I mean even sort of going from Brighton to London, I haven't been doing that so much, that most of the time I'm pretty close to home and I haven't been preparing things in advance, which maybe I should do. So I can just prepare things at home because I visit clients and then I'll normally go home to eat. Mm. Um, and then last week I did have to go to London. I did have a 10 minute window to quickly grab something to eat before I jumped on a train. And I went into one of the uh, sort of sandwich stores around there and I looked around and there was nothing that I could have. So it was pasta salads. So all the salads are great. They have salads, but they're all pasta salads. Yeah. Pasta's a no-no and uh, baguettes and sandwiches and all bread sort of stuff so i had to have a sandwich and it did bring my sugar levels right up just that wow. one sandwich brought my sugar levels right up not to dangerous levels but to cause for concern levels beyond what a healthy person would go to wow. after having had a sandwich yeah so i guess if you know with the ketogenic diet then it's 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 about being um i guess planning in advance to know that you've got food available to you is there any kind of snack that you could you know that you could have such as we spoke about beef jerky earlier but is there some kind of snack that you can have just on you as like a backup where if you know you are away or you can't get back to food that, that would be a good you know substitute or a good thing to eat nuts yeah. Nuts. Nuts okay. is pretty good. So um, so funnily enough, I um, when I went to London this time, I didn't plan it very well eating wise. And I, I got there and I just thought, well, I need I need something to eat now quickly. And there was a, I think it was a pound shop actually, there was a pound shop that sold big bags of peanuts. Oh, perfect. So I ran in there and bought a bag of peanuts, had a handful of those peanuts before I went and did the work. And then the sandwich, unfortunately, later. So nuts is good. I'm eating a reasonable amount of nuts. I keep okay. nuts in the car. I keep nuts on me. So nuts is a really good um, strategy to have them on you at any point. Yeah, just in case I you think get they're sort of keto friendly okay. and they're high and they're protein. As well, yeah, yeah and exactly. they've got good fat content, so I imagine they allow exactly. you to digest. Yeah, there's, there's not 
a, a vast variety of different snacks, Gary, to be honest with you. Yeah. Okay. So I think, you know, nuts is really, I try not to snack if I can, because yeah. the, uh, the variety just isn't there. So it's really, I found, and again, there may be experts yeah. that might be able to give more advice, but for me, it's kind of nuts and that's really yeah, about yeah. it really. And beef jerky is another one as well. So do you find that your um, appetite has gone down since you've adopted this um, diet plan? Uh, my appetite is probably about the same actually i don't th i'm one of these people fortunately that doesn't think about food very much okay. so i'm not sort of thinking and fantasizing about food yeah i'm and similar like to you as well a lot of people do that come to see me in my practice so i'm not someone that's always thinking about food so my my appetite is is about the same actually mm. so what would you say has been the most challenging aspect um of um, changing your diet to a ketogenic diet what's been the biggest the biggest struggle for you I mean could it be you know you can't go out for dinner with people is it is there some kind of unusual byproduct of, of changing your diet yeah I guess that would probably be it like the London example if you're out and about and you haven't planned then you realize how restrictive it is or if you go out for a meal and you decide that if I'm I want to stay keto friendly that actually you need to make a choice that that uh, supports that mm. and you know don't get me wrong there is there is an option for me to have something that does have a bit of carbs and then inject insulin afterwards but from my reading around it that's probably mm. not the best way to manage a condition long term I can most yeah. people do that going most people do that but the problem is you may not get problems now maybe not next year or in 10 years but later in life the more insulin you inject uh, from mm. my reading from my understanding that could cause potential problem. problems in the future yeah, it's interesting. I was um, reading a blog that you wrote on Facebook about um, six things that have happened since you've um, turned into, well, six things that have happened in the last three months in your life. And a couple of things you said is that uh, you you are amazed at the amount of support that you received and also that you feel grateful because you're grateful about the fact that you don't have something worse that would be more um, debilitating than what you've got. Could you just talk about those two? If, if, absolutely, if yeah. yes. Well, let, the latter, first of all, then absolutely. I mean, when you think of all the horrible things people are diagnosed with on a daily basis and the struggles that, that it must be to be able to to be able to manage that and accept that, I think, you know, compared to what I could have been diagnosed with, diabetes is really, really nothing. It's really not that that bad. So I think, you know, it's really important when you get news like this, it's really important to choose carefully what you focus on mm. and what the meaning is. So yes, that that's the most important thing, I think. So, and again, it took a little bit of adjustment period, but it was fairly quick. And now I, I accept that and think, my goodness, it could have been, could have been so mm. much worse. So actually you've become um, more gracious in your life actually off the back of this. Yes, I have become more gracious. And I think going back to the, to, to the other point you mentioned, I think... It's always been quite difficult for me to accept help from other people of any kind because okay. that's my self-perception again. I'm the helper. That's what I do. That's yeah, my yeah, job. Yeah. My job is to help people. Um, and for me to be in that position where I kind of need a bit of help and support from other people, that is that is very alien and unnatural to me. And that that was a big adjustment as well, to be okay with the idea that actually a little bit of support, encouragement and help would be quite nice right now. And the amount of support I did get when I shared my story with people was was fantastic. It was quite overwhelming, actually. That's it's amazing to hear, actually, there that there's people around that care and can offer their support and, and things. I, I guess, um, you know, maybe there's a bit of re um, resonance between me and you here, but I guess when you're self-employed and, you know, you've spent most of your life building a business and, and you put your heart and soul into things that a lot of the time you do have to do it by yourself and there's not much support around. So you kind of get into the mindset of, you know, if I'm going to do this, it's going to be by myself and there isn't that support there. How, you know, how did you manage to make that shift? Was it just because, you know, suddenly you got so much support that you relaxed and you accepted it or how, because how, obviously it must be a, a different. I think the way I accepted it is I kind of thought, well, hang on a minute. I'm always telling my clients when they sit in front of me <laughs> how important it is to accept help, to accept support and do all these things. And I thought, well, actually, I'm going to be a hypocrite. I'm going to be incongruent if I don't practice what I preach. And 
That's the other thing about this as well. It's really been an opportunity for me to practice all the principles and strategies and ideas and insights that I share with my clients on a daily basis for me to be able to apply those to myself, which most of the time I do, but maybe perhaps not all the time. And I think the idea of help of asking other people for help, I thought, well, you know, this is what I'd be telling anybody else. If you're struggling, make sure you've got a support network. And even though I wasn't really struggling, it was just news like that. If you can share how you feel about that and feel that there are people there who, if you do want to speak to them, they're there for you. And in actual fact, I didn't need to speak to people very often, but just knowing that they were there and the support that people shared for with me and to let them to let me know that, look, we are here if you need anything was just it's just comforting to know that. I must say that, uh, yeah, when I asked you to do this episode, I, was, I wasn't I was sure whether you'd be happy about sharing the fact that you were diagnosed with diabetes 1. And I personally think it shows amazing strength and courage to admit that you have it and to, to talk about it freely, the challenges and what you've learned along the way. I, I think it's something to be proud about, actually, the way that you're attacking this in your life. I think it's great. You're not letting it get in your way. You're, you're, if anything, you're more motivated. You're more gracious. It's, it's almost like you're more well-rounded. It's, it's amazing to see, actually. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I, I um Yes, we just we just adapt the best way that we know mm. how. And, you know, I've seen people over the years who've had to overcome incredible adversity and, and challenge in their lives. And I think, well, actually, if I can't do that, then I'm not much of a role model to help other people. So actually, I felt it was it was my my duty to adapt mm. as, as gracefully as, as I could do. And I've just done my best to, to do that, really. Yeah, it's amazing, actually. Um, how, how do you feel now that you're you know, you're able to put everything that you've been educating people on for almost two decades into practice in your own life. I mean, how that must leave you with a sense of pride or what, how would you describe it? It, it leaves me, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I see myself as fairly authentic anyway. Um, I try to be authentic. It's a value that I hold very highly, but actually it makes me even more authentic is the way I look at it. So I, I feel more authentic because I'm, I'm practicing and applying many of the principles that I teach with my clients when they're facing challenges in their lives. I'm, I'm applying that. So I don't know if I say feel a sense of pride. I feel a sense of I'm, I'm coping the best I can with this. And if I can share my story, then I'm being a good role model Mm. to the best of my ability, being a, a good role model to others. Oh, 100% you are. And the fact that you're doing this podcast is great. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm looking at transitioning into a ketogenic diet myself. So obviously, yes. you're, yes, you're giving me advice and help me along the way. So hopefully, this episode can also inspire other people to, to do the same. If we can um, switch this up a little bit, if, we, if you can put your uh, psychologist hat on now. Okay, and yep. and uh, I know one of the areas that you specialize in is in emotional eating. Um, could you just give me a, an explanation on exactly what is emotional eating? Okay. Well, the way I describe it to people is when you are responding to a thought, a situation or an emotion rather than hunger. That's going to take a few seconds to settle in. So by that, you mean when you have that emotion, you reach for food? Well, the emotion, yes. So, so it's uh, when, you, when you're about to make a decision to eat something, what are you responding to? Are you responding to hunger or are you responding to a thought, an emotion or a situation? So uh, my, my, my argument has always been there's too much emphasis on the nutrition, the side of things, too much emphasis on the exercise, not enough on understanding the decision-making process. What causes you to make the decision in the first place? How can you differentiate between whether you're hungry, whether it's a thought or whether it's an emotion impacting whether you want to eat food or not? That's a good question. I think sometimes it will be obvious. Sometimes I think a lot of people are aware when they eat to soothe themselves. They eat to, to lift their mood. They eat to self-medicate. I think some people are aware they have those patterns. Other people, maybe not quite so much. And one thing, for example, is, is hunger tends to come on quite slowly. Whereas if you're responding to an emotional thought, that will happen quite quickly. So suddenly you might think, oh, I really fancy a donut or whatever it may be. Whereas hunger is something that, that is kind of builds. more gradual. It's a gradual buildup. That's a really good distinction. So if it's all of a sudden, a sudden feeling of hunger, typically that's a, an emotion or a thought. Whereas if it's a slower buildup, it's actually genuine hunger. 
Exactly. That's one that's one distinction. That's one thing I try and direct my clients' attention to. That actually if you you're sitting there and you you're not aware that you're hungry particularly, but you think, Oh, I really fancy a, a burger or a donut or whatever it may be and then you you visualize you hold that image in your mind <laughs> we've all done that <laughs> and the thing is of course when you hold it in your mind you always represent it in a way that's far bigger and more attractive than Absolutely. it actually is in real life and you know the marks and spencer's adverts know this very well when they you do. see them at christmas time <laughs> so you know and the more you try and ignore the thing the bigger and more tantalizing it becomes in your mind so what kind of intervention then could you use in that situation where you know i've suddenly had a thought that i really fancy a Marks and Spencer's double chocolate cake. Okay. How, how could you intervene at that point? So I think the first thing is asking, what am I responding to here? Okay. What am I responding to? Is this hunger or is this something else? So if, if we play this out, say I would say it's a thought. I saw the advert on TV and I look at that thought and it's make, making me salivate and I really want it. Okay. Which is completely emotional. Okay, so the thoughts. first thing is we would examine the thought. So okay. what happens lots of times is you have these these pressure kind of no choice words in there. So I must. Okay. I must have a donut. I need to have a donut. Okay. So def uh, definitive words. I definitive must and words. I need. Okay. That, that is how you know your emotional mind has hijacked your rational mind. Because you have those rigid set in stone. Not, oh, I, I quite fancy a donut. Maybe I'll have one. Maybe I won't. It's not that. It's I need a donut. I must <laughs> have a donut. Yeah. I need to have it now. So if you change your language from must and need to I fancy one or I quite like one, what impact does that have on the emotion? Does it does it denigrate it or reduce well, what it? What it does is when it's a good question. What it does is when you say need and want and must, then you are closing down the possibility of any other choice. You are perceiving it and positioning it as a need, as something you must have. It's a need that needs fulfilling. Mm. Whereas if you change the need to a preference, then it softens it. It gives you a choice. So I would prefer mm. to have a donut now. I would, I would like to have a donut now. But there's always two sides to the story as well. So your emotional mind doesn't like two sides of the story, so it will edit out the other side of the story. So right. I would balance it. So the key, yeah. going back to your earlier question, would be I would like a donut, but I would also like to be slim. So you add the end of the sentence, but... So you fill in the gap. You fill in the gap. Because I, I must have a donut is only half the story. It's a it pressure is. word. It's only half the story. So it's important to challenge that. The more you try and ignore, I must have a donut, I must have a donut, what people try and do is they either try and ignore it or they try and fight it. Yeah. Neither of those approaches work. What you need to do is pick up on that thought, but balance it. Hang on. Let's delve into that. So most people, when they have the thought of, you know, they get this thought coming up that they want this, this chocolate dessert, most people either try and ignore it or they fight it, neither work. Mm -hmm. Whereas what did you say works for that specific, because this is a very balancing, specific point. Balancing the thought. Balancing the thought. And ha so rather than saying, I must have a donut, you you would say, I quite fancy a donut, although I'm also trying to be slim. But yeah, all, but, all, all, the, all those, fine, yeah. And that, what does that do to, d does it just give you a different... Um, it, perspective it that? reminds you there are two sides to this story it reminds you that um we we always have competing emotions in life gary you know this so you know behavior change the very essence of behavior change is a state of ambivalence so on the one hand i want to do this but on the other hand, I want to do this. And it's really important when you're in the moment, because the mind likes to edit things down for simplicity, when you're in the moment to recognize that that ambivalence is there and it brings your awareness and your attention to the fact that ambivalence exists. Mm. So saying I want a donut is only half the story and it's edited the competing emotion out. It's edited the idea of, yes, I do want a donut, but I also want to be slim as well. Mm. Then once you've got that awareness, suddenly you recognize, okay, well, there's going to be a cost to, to having that donut. Be interested to get your view here on a stoic philosoph uh, philosophical approach here. They, they tended to believe that you would be focusing on your longer term ambitions. So, for example, most most people um, typically don't have long term goals and say long term, we can just say a year's time. So say you're 18 percent body fat and you want to get down to 12 percent. If you've got that written goal down that I want to get down to 12 percent. How well does that act as an intervention tool to prevent you even from having the thought that you want something in the first place? Good question. I don't think it's always that effective. And I think the reason being is we are so much, particularly when the emotional mind hijacks, it's all about instant gratification. In that moment, you couldn't care less what's happening in six months or a year's time. It's too too far away for it to impact your thinking and your decision-making directly. So I don't think it's the most powerful, immediate thing to do to be able to 
give you another option and to balance things. So oh. it's much more effective to balance the thought in the here and now rather than say, well, look, I could have that donut, but then yeah. in six months' time, I'm not going to get to my goal. That's great, but you can, it's very easy to say, well, that's six months or a year away. You know, one, one donut's not going to kill me. So I guess it depends how invested you are into in, into your goal or, or what you perceive because if it's a if it's conjecture obviously it's not a big deal but if it's more instilled in you it, or, it is or, but, but also I think you know we're dealing with the emotional mind the emotional mind wants here and gratification now. it's here and now so you can you can create that very logical rational argument but, but not, the emotional mind is not driven by um, by ration and not driven by being rational and, yeah. and logical so it's very logical it makes sense but, but it goes by by feeling so it's really important in the moment to look at that thought is it balanced is it helpful is it reasonable it's really interesting are, are there any other intervention tools other than you know um filling in the blank and telling the rest of the story are there any other ways that you could handle that in that situation or is that the the best way that you would advise that's the best way that i would advise there's other things that i do with clients as well so sort of putting together pre-performance routines for them and things. So if you know you're in a situation where there's going to be temptation to mentally prepare yourself for that temptation. So I get people to write down, well, what are the high risk areas? Okay. What, are the, what are the high risk moments of you making a bad so, eating decision? So, so can we play this out? So if I said to you, um, Hoddy, my high risk situation is I have dinner at seven o'clock every evening and around eight o'clock, I have a cup of tea and I really fancy a bag of crisps some, or some cake or some biscuits. How would we go about doing a pre-performance routine for that? Okay. So the first thing, a lot of bad decisions are made, eating decisions and probably other decisions as well, <laughs> yeah. when we are caught off guard. Okay. When the mind is caught off guard. So the more you can mentally prepare, the more you can identify in advance, well, these are the challenges. And that one you mentioned is a good example. So in that case, you would run it out in your mind, do a mental imagery exercise where you see yourself in that scenario making the right choice. And see yourself, make it as vivid as possible. See yourself, see yourself at that crossroads where you're about to make that decision and see yourself making the healthy eating choice and feeling a sense of pride and accomplishment from that. It's really important to feel a sense of pride and accomplishment. And then yeah. once you've run that in your mind, then you, you've mentally prepared yourself. You primed your mind to make it more likely to take the option. So in doing that, though, you still must have some kind of goal towards healthy eating to be able to make that distinction and that decision. Mm -hmm. So is that more of just having a mindset of, being healthier or is there something which you know I mean you can set targets with weights and stuff like that or is there something else that enables people to make that decision easier I still think setting goals and targets is important I still okay. think having those goals and targets are important but I think the mistake a lot of people make is they set a goal and they think that just by the fact they've set the goal and written it down that magically think things yeah. are going to be smooth towards towards getting there and it's it's not always the case so so having that overriding mm. goal and targets is necessary but to keep you on track with those mm. there's mental conditioning decision making processes that you need to go through and prepare for yeah. to make it more likely that you you see the path yeah it's interesting so when i when i do um like goal setting or mentoring with, with some of my clients one of the things we look for are you know the icebergs in the distance where you can only see the top of them and the real issues underneath you know what's going to prevent you from achieving this goal so obviously if you're looking at eating food snacking and eating bad food is obviously something on the horizon that can that can go wrong um, one of the things that we, we look at, it's not necessarily limited to eating, is replacing one habit for another. Um, so say, for example, someone who emotionally eats tries the intervention that you've described and it's not working for them. What kind of value would you give to, say, replacing that snack, snack for a healthier option as opposed to not having it? Is that easier to do? Is it more difficult to do? I think as far as habit is concerned, it, you need to make sure the habit is still giving the same reward. Because if it's not giving the same reward, then that habit replacement probably isn't going to work. So going back to what you were saying about substituting habits, yes, sometimes if you've got an unwanted habit, the easiest thing, so the sort of habit loop thing that I know you're familiar with, yeah. where you have a trigger that triggers the routine or the habit that then leads on to a certain reward. Could you just explain that in a sure. little bit more detail just for yeah. the listeners? Okay. Yeah. So first thing, so any habit, desired or undesired, every single habit has this kind of underlying framework. So you have a trigger initially. So the trigger may be a thought, maybe a situation, maybe an emotion. So the thought then leads on to 
the routine or the habit. Okay. So I have this thought, whatever it may be, the routine, the habit is I eat that donut and the reward is I feel feel a nice buzz, a nice sugar buzz, nice chemical rush from that, uh, from okay. that donut. Okay, so you're getting the be. loop of thought into action into the feeling afterwards. Yeah. Is that, okay, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So sometimes replacing something that does give you some kind of reward, but you need you need to be clear on what the reward is. So you mm. need to examine, you know, is it that it gives me a little sugar buzz in the afternoon when I'm flagging, gives me an energy kick? Mm. Is it an emotional thing is it i'm i'm eating this because i feel unhappy i feel sad and food is a, is a reliable and convenient source for me to get a little happy fix so mm. you need to be clear on well, what is the reward that i'm that i'm getting from this okay and in, if you're going to change the habit you need to make sure you're still getting the same reward yeah that 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 would make sense so if we um bring this a little bit more full circle then in your experience of working with people and, and creating these intervention tools and and looking at emotional eating the people that have succeeded the best under your education what would you say it is about them that enabled them to actually follow on and stick to these habits or these routines longer term is there is there some kind of mental aptitude that they have is there a Okay. Yeah. Um, good question. I think, I think first of all, some people are initially more open to the idea that the mind is really key to this than anything else. Some people are a bit resistant and they spend a lot of their time looking for the magic diet that's going to change everything. And I think once they recognize, well, actually, it's really about the decision I'm making here. It's really about well, what am I really responding to here? What is it? What patterns am I, am I following? What am I really getting from, from my eating? That, sorry, just that in itself, obviously, for anyone um, or for people listening, that is quite a difficult task to do by yourself. How, can you offer us any guidance on how you would actually, because there's self-awareness is required to do that. Is there any advice you could give on how people can be more self-aware? Is it, could you ask yourself a specific question? Is it keeping a food journal? What, is there a... I think it going back to what I said earlier on, what am I responding to here? Is this a thought? Is this an emotion? Is this a situation? So, is being more so in other words, yeah. other words, am I responding to the needs of my mind or the needs of my body? Okay. And the needs of your body being hunger. So am I responding to my mind or am I responding to hunger? That's, That's a good the point, question actually. that leads you down that, that path. Yeah, I like the distinction between my mind and my body as well because that allows you to actually um, objectify it a little bit. Exactly. Yeah, that's it's super interesting. So um, with regards to, you know, emotional eating, have you noticed anything about yourself over the last three months that's actually come up or any like thoughts or any way in which you personally were used to emotionally eat well i don't i haven't i don't emotionally eat that much really in the past i haven't done that but what i did notice which was quite interesting is all of a sudden when when rice was off the table so for me i love rice <laughs> i'm half half middle eastern i was brought up on rice buckets full of rice every day ever since I was a kid and suddenly this idea that I can't have rice anymore it's off the table and one of the things I always tell my clients is don't have forbidden foods because if you have forbidden foods you're going to crave it even more mm. but then suddenly I'm in this position of having a forbidden food not because <laughs> yeah. I've, I've chosen to necessarily yeah. um, so that was a challenge and I did find actually that there was a part of me that thought well I want rice I want rice and this is a bit unfair yeah yeah and that that's when I needed to and I spoke about this in the the blog that I wrote earlier on that you referred to is far as I'm concerned I don't enter the, the decision making process as far as what whether or not I should have carbs for me, that choice is not even on the table. So I don't go into this whole, oh, maybe I'll just have a little bit of ice cream or a little bit of bread or a little bit of sugar, whatever it may be. As far as I'm concerned, there is no choice. That choice is off the table. And that, I guess, allows you to not give any mental power to actually exactly. thinking about it. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I was reading about Einstein used to have five of the same outfit in his wardrobe. And when they asked him why, he said, well, it gets rid of the thinking process. Exactly. And yeah. that makes complete sense to me. And that's kind of how I was eating anyway. Yeah. So it's not that big a jump for me to just carry on, carry on that, really. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think if you're disciplined as well, then, which I am, it's always been a, a value of mine, then this is just another thing to add to my discipline list. So obviously, um, you know, with emotional eating, I guess there can be some things that we could do on a day-to-day -day basis that would maybe alleviate the symptoms. I'm assuming getting good sleep, perhaps even meditating. Are there some um, evidence-based um, proof of what would actually, you know, on a just on a day-to-day -day living experience, reduce the 
potential to be emotionally eating? Well, I think the biggest thing above anything else is make sure you know what the reward is, going back to the habits. So what what are your unwanted habits and what is the reward you're getting at some level? Because what people fail to realize when they want to change something is you are getting something from those habits. You may call them unwanted habits that are ruining your life, but you are getting a benefit from them or you wouldn't be following them. So, And people are really resistant to get their head around that. So you need to recognize they are helping you in some way. They are serving you. So any habit that you have, even if you think it's unwanted or I want to get rid of it, you need to think, what reward am I getting here? It, yes, even if the reward, even if reward is, is a term that doesn't quite fit for you, purpose maybe. Purpose. What purpose does it, solve, does okay. it uh, provide? And once you illuminate or bring from the darkness what it is, what would be the next step or is that so, often enough? No, no. So the next step is, okay, well, if I've noticed that from eating, I'm eating to escape unwanted feelings in other words the reward is calm and relaxation and a still mind then make sure you've got other things in your life that are giving you calm relaxation and a still mind and i think it makes sense to me one of the biggest i'm going to be talking about this on another thing later actually one of the biggest frustrations that people have with themselves is they feel compelled to eat or drink or take drugs whatever it may be they feel compelled and they feel they don't have a choice and they can't understand why they can't break that pattern and for me, it makes complete sense and there's no point in beating yourself up about it. If eating or drinking is the only way that you can experience calm and relaxation, you're going to take that path. Of course you are. It makes sense to me. It's a perfectly natural and reasonable thing to do. So you're suggesting here that you need to have more options to exactly. get to that feeling. Exactly. So, for you know, what... Sorry, just uh, think out loud. What are some of the main feelings that people overeat because of is it, is it it's an escapism so, yeah, there's, so a lot, they, there's a lot of evidence yeah. that um so for example with with alcoholics for example there's a lot of evidence that alcoholics don't enjoy the feeling of drinking and the feeling of being drunk but they they enjoy the feeling of escaping from unwanted feelings what what kind of feelings are they i mean are they yeah what kind of feelings do, so do you normally, personally see with people? normally the feelings i see most are a feeling of sort of low self-worth so low, low self-worth is, is, a, is a big one. And how, what would be the, the opposite of that? So if you feel low self-worth and you're eating food, what would be a way of gaining high self-worth to give yourself more options of getting well, to that feeling? Well, there's two options. Okay. First of all, you could do something that provides relaxation and calm. Now, that's not going to build the self-worth, but at least it's going to you're going to have a healthy way of distracting yourself from those feelings. Okay. So if you go and meditate or go and run a nice hot bath, whatever it may be, then that's going to provide you with the same reward that eating would do. Building the self-worth is something that's slightly different. So building the self-worth is about learning to change your focus, learning to change the story about who you believe that you are. And that can take a little bit more time, but that's an area that I work with very often. Because for me, I always talk about the presenting problem and the underlying problem. So when people come to see me with the presenting problem of I want to lose weight, I'm an emotional eater, the underlying problem more often than not is I have low self-worth. Wow. That that really, really makes sense, actually. Just thinking about my, my own life and times when I've been, you know, overeating historically is probably because of low self-esteem at that period of my life. Uh, especially after I had my car accident when I was 18 years old, I, you know, I, I couldn't train as much and I, I definitely went down the emotional eating route then. Um, and it's only really been since I made better decisions in my life to, to build my self-worth by doing things that I love and passionate about and helping people that my self-worth has been raised with it. Well, exactly. And that's a great example that you said there. So you're doing things now that are meaningful to you and that are giving you those rewards. So that's great. So there's no need for you to do the emotional eating anymore. Whereas mm. with a lot of people, they don't have those options and they don't understand it because they've been focusing, looking for solutions in diets. Mm. And really it's about, well, look, if the only way of you experiencing a brief relief from these feelings is for you to go and have a donut or a hamburger. I completely understand why you're yeah. doing that. And in fact, you know what? In many ways, I'm glad you're doing that because at least you're doing something rather than, than just wallowing in that pain. At least wow. you have some strategy, even if it's not the most healthy one. Mm. But what I do is, and that's quite surprising people when I sit down with no, them it and sense. I say, I'm glad that you have this. And they're like, well, how can, how can it? <laughs> yeah. It's a good thing because if you didn't have it, you had nothing, you'd be wallowing in that pain. So first of all, it takes away all the beating them 
themselves up all the frustration and pressure that they've directed themselves because they can't solve this problem. I said, yeah. it's great you have this problem and it's understandable that you have this problem because you haven't got any other options at the moment. Yeah. Okay, it makes sense to me why you're doing that. I'm going to show you different options. This is, I'm assuming you already know this, but this is relevant to every area of your life. This yeah. isn't just related to food, is it? I mean, exactly. I'm just, there's about a thousand things ringing around in my head at the moment about how this is just giving me more um, self-awareness. Exactly. As, 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 and as what often happens, Gary, is I work with people in emotional eating and then through this process, they realize, well, hang on, actually, this is relevant over here and in this mm. area of my life. And then we end up working on other areas as well. Yeah, I can I can imagine. Um, so I know you've, you've mentioned meditation a couple of times um, about all relaxation, such as having a warm bath or, you know, and I guess the meditation doesn't need to be lying down on the bed. It could be going and doing a sport or, or painting or doing something where you're not thinking about the troubles in your life. Are there any other um, ways of, you know, overall ways of calming your mind? So obviously self-expression for me personally is is a really good way. It keeps me focused. Doing this podcast, for example, is really good for me. I get to self-express. I'm really looking forward to doing them. My mind's often on them. I listen back to old episodes to see how I can improve on them. So that for me has been, you know, just a fantastic way of using my time. Are there other ways and obviously relaxation being another one? Well, I think what you said is, is absolutely spot on. I think it's it's a case of either slowing your mind down or absorbing your mind into something purposeful. It's those two things. So meditation will slow your mind down, whereas if there's something that you're passionate about and you enjoy that you can become completely absorbed in, then that's going to occupy your mind as well. That makes a lot of sense. I've done a lot of meditating over the years. And one of the things I'll say is that, yes, it does calm me down. Yes, I am more relaxed. But knowing myself a bit better, I operate better at a higher level. So for me, uh, you know, meditating to a really static pace actually brings me further away from what I'm trying to do. And as you've just mentioned, the fact that I've channeled this into something that I love is actually way more beneficial to my life. And also not just me, but the people in my life as well. Because often when I when I meditate, I, I would also go into overthinking about things. Whereas actually when I channel into something that I love, there's no overthinking process. It's actually just using that energy for my benefit. Absolutely. Really well explained. Absolutely. I think with a lot of people, they feel they need to do meditation because it's something they know they need to do and is good for them. But actually, you know what? Meditation might not be the best fit for you. And if it isn't, that, yeah. that, that's fine. I have to say the best meditation for me nowadays, I like going hiking. And actually, I'll go and do a two and a half hour hike, which just takes me away from my day to day activities. I feel so replenished afterwards. It's amazing. And for me, that that's more beneficial than a meditation to calm my mind. Exactly. And I think for somebody like you who is more high energy, maybe doing something where you can become absorbed in that activity, whatever floats your boat, then I think that's maybe maybe a more suitable best fit strategy for you to to slow your mind down yeah. or to di redirect your attention rather than meditation. Yeah, definitely. Because when you have an active mind, you can often fall into the trap of being you know quite highly anxious because you overthink things. Exactly. And it's yeah. always going to be more of a challenge if you are someone who is high energy or a thinker it's always going to be much more challenging for you to do meditation than it is for for somebody whose mind is not quite so racing all the time so obviously we, we've discussed for someone with high energy like myself what about for people that are generally low energy normally obviously the meditation is not going to get their energy levels up are there ways in which obviously exercise is that one way of doing it are there i mean so to increase their energy levels with a view of what with what goal or purpose in mind yeah that's a good point actually i guess if um so for someone like myself who has a lot of um, a high energy channeling that into something is extremely meaningful for me mm -hmm. so what about someone who's um say emotionally eating that's got generally lower levels for themselves is there a way of um perhaps giving them more energy to become intoxicated with something in their life or is it is that not really the case Okay, I'm going to direct this back at you again. Yeah. Um, so again, I'm just explaining to me what, what the benefit would be of of raising their energy levels. Yeah, so say for example... So explain what you mean by energy levels. Yeah, so I'm just thinking for potential listeners, because it's okay for someone like myself to be like, listen, I've got shed loads of energy. I can go and train at the gym. I can go and do all these things on a daily basis. I can do a podcast. I can write. And that allows me to not emotionally eat because I'm channeling it into something. So I'm getting a lot of self-respect from it. 
What about someone who doesn't have much energy levels and they're struggling to raise their self-esteem? I guess that's more of the question. Um, someone that doesn't quite have the up and go or the energy levels to start so working mo- on their so self-esteem. So motivation is really yeah, what you're alluding I guess, to. Yeah, I guess, yeah, that's the exact okay, that, that's, okay. I was just sort yeah. of making... We got, just, we, we got yeah. there in the end. I, <laughs> just, yeah, I was just understanding in my head, just kind of categorizing. No, it makes sense. So yeah. motivation, yep, yeah, so absolutely. So, yeah, so motivation, yes, again, it comes down to understanding well, what you're passionate about and what your strengths are. What are your strengths and skills and competencies? So what kind of things am I good at and what kind of things am I passionate about? And can I take those two things and put them together into some kind of activity or experience? Which is, I guess, what you've done in your life. Generally with my work? Yeah, with your Um, work, definitely, yeah. Yes, yes, I suppose it is. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, and actually when you've made that distinction, it's definitely something I've done in my work as well. So perhaps someone who's... um, you know, as a calmer disposition for me than me. Um, I actually struggle to write quite a lot because I, I find it's very difficult to calm myself down to write, which is why doing podcasts and speaking at events much more suits my personality. So I guess expressive writing, it's something that you actually um, focus on as well, I know. It is. I mean, you know, personality comes into it as well. I mean, I, I guess I would imagine that I, the difference between you and me, I would imagine that I'm I'm probably naturally slightly more introverted maybe on that continuum than, than you would be. So I think something like writing for me is something that fits my personality maybe a bit better than it would do someone who's highly extroverted. Mm. So I do enjoy the presenting and that kind of things, but also there are times when I quite enjoy getting in my head and my own world and doing my writing, but it depends what, what kind of mood I'm in. Cause I do have elements of extroversion mm. as well. So I think going back to the low energy thing, if someone's mm. introverted and they're okay with being introverted, so they're deep thinkers, they like to spend a lot of time in their minds, then actually, you know, maybe they don't want to change that. You know, maybe if, mm. even though they might be what we would consider low energy, if they're happy and content, then that's great. But if you've yeah. got somebody else sitting there saying, I want more motivation. Mm. That's different. Mm. That's a really big distinction, Hoddy. I mean, for me personally, just if I'd have been aware about that 10 years ago, my life would have panned out completely differently because you, you start to, you know, you, I read a lot anyway, and you know, there's a lot of differing advice on, you know, how to develop your life and how to feel better about things, but tailoring it specifically to your personality, what you're good at and what you're passionate about is pretty obvious that that's going to pay way more dividends in your life. I think so. I think most people follow this kind of success narrative of this is the kind of thing that I should do in order to be successful. Whereas very rarely do people ask themselves the question, well, what kind of thing would make me happy? What kind of thing is the best fit for my personality, for my energy levels? Yeah. And that would be, those would be better questions to ask yourself that would, could, could send you down a route that's more purposeful and more pleasurable. Yeah. And I, that's a, that's a great place to, uh, to come to an end on this episode, Hoddy. I, I really appreciate you being on the show. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Always enjoy talking to you. Yeah. And if anyone would like to get in contact with you, how would they go about doing that? Best place would be my website, which is www.hodykhody.co.uk or my Facebook page, which is my business page, which is hodykhody mind coach. Perfect. And uh, I'll also put a link to your website in the description for the episode. So uh, thanks again, Hoddy. And I'm sure we'll do another episode. My pleasure. Look forward to it. Some really thought provoking information and knowledge from Hoddy there especially about how he's managed to transition his life and the effect that it's made to his eating as a whole and also his general energy levels. So if you've enjoyed this episode and you know someone that might benefit, then why not share this episode with them as a gift? And also don't forget that if you'd like to subscribe to my podcast for some upcoming interviews, you just need to search The Gary Gunn Show on any podcast player or the iTunes store. Until next time. 